Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Back to your Friday Buckeye Talk rapid fire today. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. We had a great Zoom call with subscribers on Thursday night. We'll talk a little bit about that later, but you know I like to jump in hot and fresh right away. Rapid fire questions from our loyal tech subscribers. Let's go to number one from the 614. It's a long question and I can't, I can't figure out where the nut graph is. Here it is. <laughs> Nice, hot, fresh start, Doug. From the 614, what is the reasonable expectation for a future first-round draft pick in their first year of starting? And how much should be placed on coaching for the results of that first year? So we know what this 614 texter is talking about. He or she says they are asking about it because they're curious about the 2021 class and all these great players that are going to be coming in. How much should you expect in 2021? that they would contribute right away. We have a decent history on this. I went through part of that history. Nathan, there's also just a general vibe you might have to it. For an Ohio State guy who's going to go on and be awesome, year one on campus, what should we expect? Well, I, I, I don't know how to fully answer that question. I don't mean to be – I think it just varies from position to position, player to player, right? I mean, there's, there, there's – some guys are later bloomers than others. Um, you know, when you phrase it as in a future first round draft pick, um, I, did, you know, expectations were different at every stage of the way for both Jeff Akuda and Damon Arnett, uh, even going into their final season, but they're both first round draft picks. So I, I think opportunity is really the biggest deciding factor in this. I, I don't, and I don't know how much I really place it, especially in your first year. I don't know how much I place it on coaching because, um, I, especially, you know, it depends on whether the guy was there in the spring or whether the guy didn't get there in the fall too. Like how much, how much does the coaching in just a few months bring them up to their potential or even get them to approach their potential? I, I, I look at, I look at performance over a longer period than that. I don't know if you can, you can reasonably say that a guy is supposed to be great from day one. And I think that, that it's going to just vary from player to player. God, I could hear the angst in your voice. This is a nightmare question for Nathan Baird. It's like a great big wide question with a million different specific examples within a great big wide question. Your brain almost exploded. 
Well, what? So, what's a better answer to that question? Oh, I, I don't mean answer. to criticize the question, I'll, but Stephen, take your shot. Take your shot. Yeah. So here's how I'm going to answer this because I think when they're saying future first rounders, they're talking about five star players. That's probably what they're talking about. So that takes Damon Arnett all out of this, and so you're thinking Jeff Okuda, Chase Young, those type of guys. I think in their first year as a starter, they need unless that's you're not the a, question. That's not the question. Yeah, oh, it is the question. It is the question. It's first year as a starter, not first year. Oh, shoot. I, I looked at the whole question wrong then. Yeah. I think the other that. question is more interesting. Okay, but here's my point. That, oh, that, Doug, that well, the reading comprehension in this podcast yeah. needs to be at a higher <laughs> level. But, but that is the but that is that that does still make the question almost impossible to answer because the, 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 a freshman who is forced into a starting role right away is different than a guy in his third year starting for the first time. Okay, hold on. Let me get the editor on this. Can you take out the first two minutes? Yeah. Cause it didn't, I read the question wrong. Okay. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Welcome back to Buckeye talk. I'm going to learn how to read Steven. The question actually is in their first year of starting, I'm going to answer the question that I thought was being asked, which is in their first year on campus, which I still think is a more interesting question. But, Stephen, you go ahead and answer what the actual question from the tech subscriber is. First year of starting. First year as a starter, good, not great, where you show off some things that lead us to believe that when this is fully developed, it's going to look amazing. Now, there's some special situations like J.K. Dobbins where they come out the gate and they just look spectacular. But then there's guys like Chase where 10 sacks is a lot, I know, but compared to what he was going to do when it was fully developed, that's good, not great. And Jeff Okuda is the same way. He first should have started in the rotation, kind of the same thing when you're talking about cornerbacks in that, in that sense. You know, he was good, but he had a lot of moments where he was getting pass interference calls. And then his junior year, he didn't get a single flag thrown against him the entire season. Isn't the default expectation for everybody good, not great, unless they've already achieved like a big ten, all Big Ten status? Like, is there any – is there any expectation below good, not great? Okay, I'm going to get specific because I researched what I thought the question was, which, again, no offense to the 614 texter, I think is more interesting because to ask for the 2021 class, what are you going to do in your first year of starting? Well, it depends, like, when you get to start. But what you should do if you're going to be awesome, if you're going to be a first-round pick, what should you do in your first year on campus? I think this is a pretty – general rule that I think makes a lot of sense. I think in your first year, you should be a backup who would be ready to step in and play if needed. It should not be the expectation that you're going to be a starter. But I look at a guy like Von Bell in 2013. Christian Bryant got hurt in September. They messed around at safety. They tried to play Philly Brown. Everybody was dying for Von Bell to get that shot. They didn't play Von Bell against Michigan State. Pittsburgh Brown made a mistake in coverage, and it hurt him. And then they started Von Bell as a true freshman in the Orange Bowl, and he had a pick, and he looked good. Now, they were reluctant to play him, and that's what I want to get into a little bit, bit as part of this discussion. They have at times in the past been a little reluctant to play guys. But I think if you are going to be a first-round pick, generally, and I think offensive linemen are different, like Nicholas Petit-Frere redshirted as the number 10 player in his draft in his recruiting class even for a great offensive lineman I don't think it's bad to redshirt in year one I think that's kind of normal but for everybody else in the two deep and if you're called on because the guy ahead of you gets hurt you're ready 
That's year one. Year two is starter or starting to play, maybe inconsistent, but showing flashes, and maybe better than that. Maybe a really good player. Like Joey Bosa in year two was an All-American. Maybe really good. But at the very least, like playing enough and flashing enough to make people say, hey, that's something. And then by year three, you're a star. I think that is a reasonable path for a lot of people. And I went through all the five stars because, again, I thought I was doing what you're doing your first year on campus. Raekwon McMillan at middle linebacker in 2014 as a true freshman shared the job with Curtis Grant. I thought that was a very good, like a perfect situation for a young guy. He didn't wind up a first-round pick. He was a second-round pick. But I thought that was a great path for a guy who was going to be awesome. What Chase Young and Jeff Okuda did in 17, Chase Young – was the fifth defensive end in maybe the deepest defensive end group in the country. Jeff Okuda was the fourth corner behind Denzel Ward, Kendall Sheffield, and Damon Arnett. He played a little bit as – he played some. You saw him, but he wasn't expected to be a starter. And then when Denzel didn't play in the Cotton Bowl that year, Jeff Okuda played a little more and showed you something. I thought actually for Chase Young and Jeff Okuda, those were two good paths in their first year on campus because, again, I decided to answer my own question. Um, you know, Braxton Miller and Terrell Pryor go, both got forced in as starting quarterbacks in year one. That really wasn't necessarily the plan. It was more of a plan with Terrell than it was with Braxton. And they weren't great. They were inconsistent. They showed flashes. They probably shouldn't have been in that situation. But even though they made mistakes, you could see the potential on the top side. So I actually think what the guys last year, the three – I just answered a whole totally different question. I did what should a five-star recruit do in year one? The question was what should a future first-round pick do in their first year starting? I like this other question better. I think what guys like – I think Zach Harrison, Garrett Wilson, and Harry Miller as the three five-stars yeah. who were true freshmen last year were perfect. They had almost ideal first years on campus. Zach Harrison had the second most snaps of any defensive end, but he wasn't really a starter. He was in the mix. Garrett Wilson had the third most snaps of any outside receiver. Absolutely a starter in that rotation, but not relied upon to carry the whole offense. Harry Miller, absolutely in the two deep as an interior lineman. Seventh most snaps among the offensive linemen. And now all three of those guys you expect to be really good in year two. And if they all wind up as first round picks, nobody would be surprised. So in the mix, helped the team, showed flashes, were ready in year one, starters in year two, who you're going to expect a lot of, and then absolute superstars in year three. I think that is the ideal path. And for instance, I think that's what those guys are on. Nathan, since the question has completely changed since we last heard from you, what about that idea? What about that and the idea that maybe Zach Harrison, Garrett Wilson, and Harry Miller have shown exactly what that path can be? I like your question and your answer to it better. We'll um, cut out the first part. We'll cut out the first part. We'll yeah. just play extra theme music at the beginning. <laughs> okay. But, but, I, but I, 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 so I, see, I do see where you're going with that. I do still, though, see that there is – I have different expectations for a five-star offensive lineman in his first year on campus than I might for a five-star – no, and receiver. I think just wipe out offensive linemen. There's no, of course, offensive linemen are different. They have to change their bodies. They have to change their eating habits. They have to get stronger. Paris Johnson might be the exception to the rule, but it's almost not worth considering offensive linemen like anybody else. Right. But, but even, okay. But even with other positions, I think you're going to have a different expectation, but I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's about a progression. I think it's, it's not fair 
to expect five guys, five star guys to come in right away and blow the doors off the place, especially because sometimes they don't have a, a clear opportunity to do it. It's more about the progression in that second and third year. Um, certainly, certainly by the third year, but even in that second year, are you seeing the momentum towards the ceiling that they were supposed to have? But I also don't think it's the greatest thing in the world, no matter how much talent's in front of them, if a five-star comes in and vanishes, like just is not at all, is not on the two deep, doesn't really get on the field, even when the second teamers are in, I still think that's not great for a five-star. It doesn't mean it can't happen, but I would like that raw talent, the coaches to be so excited and for them to start picking up stuff in practice, be like, well, we got to get this guy in the field a little bit. Steven, since you are answering the correct question, why don't you go ahead and answer the question now that I made up in my own head, apparently. That idea, what do you think for a five-star in year one, not year one of starting, but year one on campus, what do you think is the right path? I, too, like this question better because, you know, you can actually answer it. Yeah, I agree with what you said. The first year, you're in the two deep. There's the opportunity if, you know, they need you to be a start, step in as a starter for one game. You have the ability to do that, but for the most part, you're, you're mostly a backup. In year two, you're in the rotation or a starter, depending on what position that is. And in year three, you're you're probably the best player in that room, or arguably, depending on like if there's other five stars or not. But more than likely, you're the best player in your room. You're one of the leaders on the team, and you should be trying to get your 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 goal should be trying to reach all American status. So I went back as far as 2008 in trying to look at the five stars of this. Mike Brewster, for instance, as an offensive lineman, as a center, took over as a starter. Early in 2008, right when Terrell Pryor did, and then wound up being a four-year starter. That's not the expectation, but like Mike, Bre- Mike Brewster was ready for that. There was an injury on the offensive line, and he stepped in. There's three guys I think to keep in mind that I think are, if, if you don't see something a little bit. Now, injuries are different. For instance, Sean Wade battled an injury his first year on campus, wound up redshirting, and then became Sean Wade. Sean Wade, I think, would have started to show us what he was going to be if he'd been healthy. He so caught up to that. In year two, he caught up to that you know, progression, though, because he was he did. in the rotation. So it's not like he just didn't play one year, but he was still on the same trajectory path. And so there were three guys, there were three linebackers who were five-star linebackers right in a row, 2008, 2009, 2010. Etienne Sabino in eight, Dorian Bell in nine, Curtis Grant in 10. And they all kind of had slow starts. Sabino played the most as a freshman, um, Dorian Bell and Curtis Grant didn't do as much. They both had Dorian Bell wound up transferring. Curtis Grant ended up sharing time with Raquan McMillan as a starter for a national championship team. So Curtis Grant wound up helping them in the end, but it took him till year five to get there. And those guys like didn't show a ton in year one. And it was sort of like, okay, that's fine. But like, there wasn't really much of a flash. Ryan Shazier, his first year on campus, he wasn't quite a five-star, that lost year, man, Ryan Shazier is flying around. We're begging Luke Fickle to play Ryan Shazier, and they're holding back, they're holding back, and it's like, could you please put this guy on the field? Yes, he goes to the wrong gap sometimes, but oh my God, look what he can do. So I would like to at least see the flash. Now it's a little bit harder with, again, Harry Miller, I don't know whether we saw the flash, but him being a true backup on the interior of the offensive line, that told you something. And we did see even more than a flash with Garrett Wilson and Zach Harrison since it's two questions in one, let's finish this topic with this. How much do you think coaching factors into it? Nathan, your point at the top, of course, opportunity matters. And I think, again, at Ohio State, if Ohio State's in a position where they are, like, relying on a true freshman to start, something happened that was wrong along the way. Like, they aren't relying on Paris Johnson to start. If he beats out Nicholas petit Frere, then great. And that's on – then you can't keep Paris Johnson off the field. But it's not like if he doesn't start, they're in trouble. 
How much do you think coaching does factor into this? And I'll say it two ways. There's the coaching up of the young raw talent and the quick development, but there's also the coaching decision-making to say, you know what? I got to put that guy in the field. J.K. Dobbins was the exception to the rule, right? He went bonkers in camp. We heard it. 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 Mike Weber was a little bit hurt, and all of a sudden the door is open and J.K. Dobbins takes off. That was opportunity and also he made his own opportunity. Ezekiel Elliott didn't do much at all as a true freshman on the other end. And then by the middle of his second year, he was unbelievable. How do you think coaching factors in? Because I do think it's two different, th two different things. You have to get the guy ready. But then as a coach and as a position coach and a head coach, you have to be willing to pull the trigger on giving the guy a shot to get on the field. Well, I think the second one is a little bit easier than the first one. I think if, if the guy, you would hope, any coaching staff, if the guy's proven it, that's who's going to get the shot. That's how they all kind of frame, uh, the, the good ones, I think, frame. And we talked about this on the, the Dynasty podcast, right? Like that's sort of the ruthlessness of it. A guy, you, you, you put two guys out there or three guys out there and they work and whoever earns it, earns it. So that second part shouldn't be that much of an issue. And the first part, though, I, 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 again, Let's let's look at the case. So one of the players that you're kind of alluding to it was someone like Tyreek Johnson, who who gets on campus as a five star, very highly recruited guy, very highly ranked guy, and it just hasn't happened even to that extent you're talking about, where they're not in the two deep, they're not getting those first reps behind the starters in games. So is that a coaching failing that he hasn't developed? When at the same time we are seeing development from some of the other players who came in around the same time, um, you know, guys like Seven Banks, guys like uh, Cam Brown, who are developing and getting those opportunities, I, I find it hard to um, criticize, say that the coaching failed one player at the same time it's helping multiple other players. So I, I still, at the end of the day, if it's when it comes down to one specific player at a position, and and everybody else seems to be doing fine, I, I kind of have to look back at that player or the other factor of this is sometimes the recruiting rankings are wrong and guys weren't as good as we thought they were. Are they doing fine though? Because they didn't play last year unless somebody got hurt. Because who didn't play last year because somebody got hurt? Cam Brown and Seven Banks got on the field. Yeah, they, they didn't play ahead of three first round draft picks. Right. But I'm just saying, like, we've seen that. We've, okay, but Denzel Ward got on the field with. Two other Denzel Ward was a first-round draft pick. Right. What I'm saying is, to that point, are they doing as fine as we think they are? Are we just saying that because they were the ones who got on the field over Tyreek Johnson? I, I know what you're saying, Stephen, because, like, for coming into this year, somebody has to play. Like, they have to yeah. play. They only have the guys on the roster. So, like, we're putting Seven Banks and Cam Brown ahead of Tyreek Johnson, and, and by every indication they are ahead of him. But we also don't exactly know, you know, if Seven Banks and what level they're at. Um, but, Nathan, your point, I think I understand it as well, is, like, the idea of, you know, if guys on your team are ahead of you, how can you say it's the coaching? Because, again, you still have your own personal thing that you're responsible for. I do think there are some particular guys that some particular coaches can pull something out of, right? And maybe there's some guys who have supreme talent who just need a particular style of coaching, somebody to reach them. And maybe there could be a guy who is coached well and then is not coached as well by the same coach, um, which actually – if we get to it, because this has gone long since we had two questions in one, because I can't read, we actually have a question about that later in this rapid fire, that specific idea, and we will get to that. But let's wrap this up now by saying, I'm sorry, I missed a word, but I think we ended up with two questions in one, which is why we went so long on that. Let's try to keep these to five minutes now. Maybe I'll bag a couple of them at the end. 
but we need to talk about this. And this is an old question from the 330 because I had stockpiled these questions. We're going to get a new round of rapid fire questions because guess what? We're doing rapid fire again next Wednesday for the big two hour one because the, the two hour dynasty podcast, which we all enjoyed, was so long and so in depth. I want to hit rapid fire for the two hours next week. So we'll get fresh ones. But this is old, but we're going to use it from the 330. Is it likely that any of our current 2021 recruits decommit before signing day? Who are the shakiest commits in the class right now and who are the most solid? This was sent weeks ago when this person must have maybe had an idea that Devonta Smith or somebody like him wasn't going to end up in the class. You guys know by now that this has happened. Devonta Smith decommitted from Ohio State on Thursday. We have not yet talked about it on here. He has not committed anywhere yet, but a lot of people projecting him, the recruiting analyst, to Alabama. Steven. What do you think of Devonta Smith decommitting? And then I don't know if it's worth going down the road. Are there any other guys that maybe you wonder, will they stay in the class? But let's start with Smith first. Yeah, this, I mean, he's rated as a four, number 400 player in the country, number 30 cornerback. But obviously there are some high power programs who see him as a, you know, a diamond in the rough for a lack of a better way of putting it, which is why, you know, he's been crystal ball to Alabama at this point and decommitted. And I think that's part of it. His recruitment has probably picked up in a way that it wasn't six months ago. And so now he's got options on the table that weren't there and he's exploring those options, which that can happen when you know, lower rating, especially in a summer like this, where maybe guys are overanalyzing film and we'll see in this next round of, you know, composite rankings that get updated where he fits, he lands on that list. Now he's got offers like Alabama on his, who are on his trail as well, but that's probably part of it. Nick Saban saw some of the same things that Kerry Combs saw and said, I want that kid. And so now, you know, Alabama but, might end up landing this guy. But Jack Sawyer, Alabama wants Jack Sawyer too, and he's not decommitting. Yeah. Like I don't like it's it's the idea that while well, you're an Ohio kid committed to Ohio State and you decommit just because like Alabama is interested in you. That's not how this works most of the time. So I'm not saying I know what the deal is. I don't want to make this sound like it's normal though. No, you know? no I mean this it's, is it's, this is this is this is, this is definitely weird. And a lot of the scenarios that you would want to paint for a kid who's in his situation don't apply here because he was committed to his home school. It, it could be that. It could be he just saw the room and saw Alabama had some openings Ohio State wasn't going to have. It, you know, it I'm not allowing us to do that. Yeah. It's, I'm not allowing us to do the it's going to be easier for him to play at Alabama than not, it is at Ohio not State. Easier. It's just, not easier. It's just you know, Alabama doesn't didn't have five defensive basketball. But they're in, going in to. I mean, I get it. I know what you're saying. I mean, like – uh, I don't know how you can spin this without it being a little bit like, okay, well, Ohio State lost the guy. I don't know. I mean, again, it doesn't mean it's the end of the world for this class. I am not going to – we are not going to intimate that, that anything is like there's more opportunity. There's, there's something that like somehow Ohio State was too tough for him to get on the field, but Alabama won't be. That's just not realistic. I think there's a way to say that without saying it just like why? that. You could just why say is that. that you know, but why is there a way program to say that? who's just as good as Ohio State actually maybe better than Ohio State is, and there's more opportunity here. Is and not necessarily saying I'm going somewhere easier. I'm going to the same caliber of a school, and I might get on the field a year earlier. But why do you think he'll get on the field a year earlier? Less depth at the position. They have other guys there. It's not just about how many guys are in your recruiting class. Nick Saban is like the best defensive back coach in the history of defensive back coaches. I'm not allowing us to do that. I mean, I'm not going to do it. That cannot – if you lost a kid to Alabama or, or you're going to, that's fine. And if maybe Ohio State's going to replace him with a, with a higher-rated kid, that's fine. 
the idea, and maybe Alabama's spinning the kid on that. I'm telling you, nobody leaves Ohio State and goes to Alabama because it's easier to play at Alabama. And I think some Ohio State fans would tell you maybe Alabama's trying to spin that. Maybe they did that kind of thing with J.C. Latham, that they got J.C. Latham as an offensive tackle. And I don't know, you'd say Paris Johnson and other guys were committed at Ohio State. If you, if you lose a kid to Alabama, you lose a kid to Alabama. The idea of like, well, Ohio State just has too many good players. But, you know, Alabama, maybe he can play there. That's insane. I just, I, I mean, I get it. It's insane to me. It's absolutely insane to me. So I'm not trying to make it sound like this is a huge deal, but there's only so much like, and I don't even want to say excuse making, rationalization. There's only so much rationalization on the Ohio State side of things that I can stomach because sometimes you lose kids. And again, I don't think, I don't think Ohio state believes it's, it's a, a huge blow to them, but you know, Alabama caught the kid's eye probably. Nathan, what do you think about this? Well, I mean, the other rationalization that we've heard is that, well, Ohio state wants to sign some other, you know, fill in the blank, highly ranked cornerback that's out there. And that helped push, Devonta Smith out of this class uh, I think if that were true then why would you have taken the guy in the first place I mean you at the time he was taken he was still a low-ranked guy and we've talked before about Ohio State taking those guys as as sort of a strategy to putting together a class and, and developing guys over the long term for men's state but it, I just if you thought that it was going to prevent you from taking x uh, five or four highly ranked four-star guy, you wouldn't have taken this player in the first place or accepted the, the commitment. So I, I don't think that holds water either. And I think, um, you know, Ohio State clearly wanted this guy. They saw something, I think, in him more than maybe what the rankings would reflect. And, uh, you know, we're talking to maybe hurt them directly in the next four or five years. But at some point, um, these – I'm probably going to write something about this. These sort of um, vague – recruiting rivalry that they have with Alabama now where they're just one of the national, you know, uh, presences that are kind of going head to head. It it becomes more real because you're going to play these guys in the regular season. Um, The guys that you lose to Alabama, you're going to play them in back-to-back years coming up pretty soon. So they lost it. Uh, It's not like Alabama's done much in Ohio. We did a big, we made a big deal about it at cleveland.com when they were trying to recruit Eric Smith and Marshawn Lattimore. He'd be the eighth guy from Ohio. To go to Alabama if he, if he actually does end up committing. That. In the history of the world or in what time in period? The, in the modern recruiting era, meaning since 2000. Okay. So they had uh, they had this receiver from also from Cincinnati LaSalle where, yeah. uh, where these guys go. In 2014, um, they had Ryan Kelly, who became an All-American center, and Trey DePriest. That was a big, a big deal uh, for Trey DePriest several years before that. He was a top 30 linebacker that picked Alabama um, over Ohio State. They had a kid from – Akron, Caden uh, Clark last yeah. year. Is that his yeah, name? Yeah, he did. Caden Clark from Archbishop Hoban last year. Uh, in 2009, they got a fullback, Mike Merrill. I'm sorry, seventh, not eighth. I did the math wrong. And then Naughton McKay, McKay Loshner out of Toronto, Ohio, back in 2000. That's where that begins. So it's not – so I, I said you don't want to crack the door for Saban on this. You don't want Alabama coming in here on a regular basis. Um, I, I, I'll be curious – Wherever Devonta Smith ends up, and best of luck to him. It's great to have multiple great programs after you, as, as almost all these Ohio State recruits do. But you just can't, you can't view this as like – I mean, sometimes, again, Ohio State will have a, a kid decommit, and he winds up at Minnesota or Purdue, and it's like, okay, that kid didn't just pick Minnesota over Ohio State. Ohio State cooled on him. They thought they could get somebody better. They let the kid go, and he wound up at a lesser school. That's not – I mean, you can't – when the, if the, Alabama's the next option, you can't view it this way. 
Jordan Hancock is a kid from Clemson that, that people are speculating is a top 100 defensive back. Committed to Clemson. Trevion Henderson and Ben Chrisman from Ohio State's class were sort of making googly eyes at him on Twitter the other day. Yeah. I understand, again, they're the inst- it's the instinct of Ohio State fans, and, and it's fine. I get it. To, like, immediately say, well, look, we have somebody better lined up. I don't think you're going to flip a kid from Clemson. Like, that's how this yeah. is. You're going to lose a kid to Bama and be like, it's no big deal. But then, like, we're stealing Clemson's kid. It's like, I don't know. That's a high bar, man. Um, so – I don't know. I don't even want to do who, who else is shaky. That's not fair to the kids. But um, we had to talk about Devonta Smith. Again, I don't think it's a huge deal, but I don't think it's fair to pretend you can't. Ohio State took a lower-rated kid. And everybody was like, oh, he's much better than his rating. He's 6'1". He's a long corner. He fits the exact Ohio State defensive back profile. It's a great grab for them. You can't be like all excited on the way in and then on the way out be like, ah, we didn't need him. You know, because one of those two isn't true then. So not the end of the world, but also you don't want to get in the habit of Alabama taking your verbal commits. Number three, I tested this from the 419. How many push-ups could each of you do without resting? Let's set a line. Nathan, do you think, Stephen, the Doug and Nathan push-ups combined, I would say Stephen will do, could do three times more than the Doug and Nathan combined. So I will say I went uh, this morning and I tried this out. I got to eight um, before my body broke down. Is this um, push-ups the exercise or push-ups the little sherbet thing that you used to get from the swans, man? The exercise. Oh, that would be good. How many more can you do? Can you eat more of those push-ups or can you do more? Can I eat more than – what answer (laughs) – I don't know what question we're involving. Can you eat more than X? And the answer isn't yes. But you have to, here's the, like, it's without stopping with the push-ups and it's without getting brain freeze with the, with the push-ups. We'll do that on the next Zoom call with tech subscribers. Nathan will eat ice cream while Steven does physical exercise and we'll see who can do more. I'll just be That's off so mic. I'll just be, I'll just be crushing push-ups through the whole thing. And then we'll see whether or not after an hour and a half. If I'm still sitting upright or not, that needs to be a game show. Somebody does something healthy while the other one does something unhealthy. That would Who be really good. Last longer. There's As a matter of fact, where's my notebook at? Where? Yeah, the Stephen Meese game show. There's this yeah. don't. It's called Don't Game Show. That's like a summer game show from Ryan Reynolds. That's a. It would be along the lines of that. I think we could do that. So Nathan, are you going to answer the actual push-ups part? Oh, I, I agree that Stephen can out push up you and I combined. I'm pretty sure. Stephen, how many can you do? I did it this morning because I do push-ups every morning, so I just kind of went for it, and I did 34. 34. Okay. Yeah. And okay. then I got hot, and it was a little frustrating. My lo- my arms are kind of long, but if you put – if I put my fingers, my, my middle finger and my thumb around my arm at my wrist, I can practically, like, pull my hand almost up to, like, my shoulder, and my my arm is the same width from wrist to shoulder. There's no muscular definition. It's like a long spaghetti noodle. And so that is not, I mean, to my knowledge, I'm not a weightlifter, but I don't think that makes for the best. To your knowledge, you're not a weightlifter? To my knowledge. Let me double check. Am I a weightlifter? (laughs) When you're unconscious, are you lifting weights in your sleep? Yeah. No, I am, uh, I am misreading questions in my sleep. So that, so it's like my arm is like floppy. It's like a, it's like a, not even like, like a, it's like a cook noodle, not a, not stiff like a, like a raw noodle, like a, ugh, my arm's flopping right now. I'll do it on the next Zoom call, I'll flop my arm. All right, so we're weak. We get it. We get it, tech subscriber. Steven is strong and Doug and Nathan are weak. Thanks for your question. 
from the 937 number four. This guy disagrees with our Trey Sermon take, and I think I had this saved to include in our Trey Sermon um, huge pod that we did for a Market Down Monday a couple weeks ago. From the 937, I just want to get it out there. I've strongly disagreed with your guy's take on Trey Sermon. Injuries put a damper on his career, but the guy can play. Had he not gotten hurt, I think he would have been the feature back for uh, Oklahoma the last two years and very well could have gone pro after last season. If he's healthy, which all signs point to, I believe he has an elite season this year, partially due to his skill and also due to being behind the best offensive line in America. His pass catching ability is also something that has to be acknowledged. Enough blabbing for me, though. My question is, do you guys think if Sermon, Teague, Crowley, and Chambers are all healthy, it's more likely that we see Sermon as the main back with Teague and Crowley coming in for breathers? Um, I just I, I appreciate people putting it out there. Uh, and we did that a lot on that Market Down Monday Trey Sermon podcast. I think, like, the assumption that everybody is healthy is – a, a big one. I don't think that's a necessarily a realistic one, but let's make that assumption. Let's go ahead and do that. Let's assume they're all healthy. Nathan, how would you imagine then it might work out in splitting up the carries if everybody's good to go? I do think that Sermon, if Sermon is healthy from day one and stays healthy, I think he carries the, he gets the bulk of the reps at that position. Um, but I don't, I don't foresee it playing out in a J.K. Dobbins kind of way where he is the guy getting 30-some carries a game down the stretch. I just don't see that workload in his past, even when he was healthy. And I, I think that Ohio State likes what it's gotten from Master Teague, and I think it likes what it might have coming from someone like um, Marcus Crowley, where I think those guys can be more involved. I, I don't know if it's going to be a full committee. I think Sermon would still be the primary guy there. But I, I, I think that it's, it's, it's still going to be a – not a small role for him, but a, a less role. It's never going to get to the extent of where you're just going to give the ball to him the way you did J.K. Dobbins and let him take over a game. Steven, if they're all healthy, what's your, what's your take? I wouldn't be surprised if they tried a two-back system again. I know it didn't work in 17 and, eight, and 18 as much, because, but part of that is just because J.K. Dobbins didn't run the ball well. I – I wouldn't be surprised if they try to go back to that system, especially with the way obviously they kind of had to do that. But you know, I'm just you – know, they tried it in 2018. It worked in 2017. I wouldn't be surprised to see if they go back to that with neither one necessarily being that much better than the other. They just play both and you know, split series basically. I think Trey Sermon, if healthy, probably is better than Master Teague if they're all healthy. A lot of my – Assumption with Trey Sermon is I just don't know why we would 100% think he's healthy when he had things that interrupted both his 18 and 19 season. Um, and, you know, one, it's one thing to work out. It's one thing to get it through a college football season. This is, I mean, it's obviously this is all just a guess, but I would maybe say something like, you know, Trey Sermon's the back on the first two series. Master Teague comes in for the third series, something like that, that it's like a 2-1 yeah. uh, yeah. split on carries, that it's not a share but it's not that Sermon is the workhorse. And then Marcus Crowley is there as the third back if needed. Marcus Crowley is the guy that plays in blowouts in the second half. Marcus Crowley is getting himself ready for a bigger role uh, in the future. As much as I think maybe, again, if Master Teague goes nuts at some point in his Ohio State career, they're just going to send some of our podcasts to Master Teague and be like, man, these guys didn't believe in you. I think it's possible that Master Teague is like an excellent backup running back. He was third team all Big Ten last year behind J.K. Dobbins. I just don't know about the guy being like the Big Ten running back for you. But I think it's possible that, you know, if Trey, if J.K. Dobbins or Trey Sermon comes in and starts to wear down a defense a little bit, and then all of a sudden here comes 
your your second running back with these big wide shoulders got a little bit of physicality to him also has some burst through the hole maybe not a ton of wiggle to get yards on his own necessarily but man if this offensive line is starting to knock people back on their heels a little bit and now here comes master teague it looks like that guy has a two by four in his shoulder pads and he's slamming into you in the third series and he's fresh and raring to go like i'm into that I just don't necessarily want to rely on that all the time, down in, down out, in the chase for a national title. And I also don't want to run Trey Sermon into the ground when his last two years have been affected by injuries. So I I think the idea of no matter how good Trey Sermon is, they're going to be a little bit careful. I think Master Teague as the second guy in, bam. Marcus Crowley ready if needed for all that. I absolutely see that there's a way that that can work. And it could work out really well. I just think with the the accumulation of all these guys having some variety of an injury, I just don't think it's going to work out perfectly that way. But then if it not doesn't work out perfectly, then it's great to have options, right? I don't think it's yeah. I don't think it's a criticism of Marcus Crow or um, of Trey Sermon to say that you believe he can stay healthy, but you don't believe that can happen if he's also getting the kind of this massive workload, right? Like, I don't think that's a criticism of him. I think it's, I think they will get the most out of him by probably managing the workload and, and not giving it to him the way that they gave it to JK Dobbins in the past. I also want to say that the the reader, the texter mentioned his receiving ability. And I think that's more of a, um, a likely strength than it is a proven strength of his at this point. Um, I actually sent a text out about this after we did that pod and kind of explained it more um, that he hasn't really ever had a huge receiving workload. Now, maybe that's something they would incorporate more with him in this particular offense, but it's, it's still something that remains to be seen. All right, let's move on. We'll do this one quickly. Again, we're going to keep this to under an hour because actually I have an interview I have to do for another podcast from our friend Khaled in the 858. Who's the best Hollywood actor that resembles you? As a character in certain movies, looks, personality in real life, my candidates, again, it's only for fun, and hopefully I don't upset anyone. Too late, Khaled. Uh, he says Nathan is, is Philip Seymour Hoffman. He says Stephen is Kevin Hart, and he says I am Jack Nicholson. Do I really have to explain why? Does that mean because, like, Jack Nicholson is a crazy jerk? I don't, I don't really understand why that wouldn't need to be explained Steven, first, what do you think of yourself as a Kevin Hart comparison, and do you have a better actor that encapsulates the Steven Means experience? I mean, first of all, I've been in the same room as Kevin Hart before, and I'm a lot taller than that man. So You've been in the same – what room was that? Um, he came to Kent when he was the, – the tour where he also put the, the special in theaters. Um, I forget which one it was because he's got like $7 million. But he came to Kent and did a show, and like I just happened to be backstage, got a chance to meet him. Because that's just you just live that backstage life, or you were you there as a journalist, or you just being Stephen Means? Oh, I was definitely just being Stephen Means. Yeah, I actually <laughs> followed up with Khaled on this text, and he said that height was pretty much the exact reason why he came up with the Kevin Hart comp <laughs> yes. for you. It's ridiculous. Kevin Hart's like four foot ten, literally. It was scary. I, Aim I, high, Willis. Yeah, Aim they tell high. you tell jokes about how short he is, but then you see him, it's like man. <laughs> You really look like a 13-year-old kid. This is where you're, report- you're putting your reporting skills to work now, Nathan. You're following up with Colin <laughs> yeah. about his actor question. I, I think actually – so he sent the original text, and then I think he may have sent another one 
to me responding something else. And then I was like, oh, I meant to follow up with you on that because um, I, people may not consider it a flattering uh comparison to get Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was a little bit on the doughy side uh, when he was around, rest in peace. But he was actually probably maybe my favorite actor of all time. Like, I, I think he's incredible, and I, I loved watching him. And other people have made that comparison. Khaled was not the first one to say, like, oh, like, if you ever, like, actually did something worthwhile with your life and they had to make a movie about it, or I suppose do something notorious and they have to make a movie about it, Philip Seymour Hoffman would be a good pick for that. But not uh, anymore, unfortunately. So, 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 Nathan, you're good with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Stephen, it sounds like you are pushing back on Kevin Hart. I'm someone... pushing back if it's okay. seriously about the hype thing, but I, as far as facial wise, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll live with it. He's a handsome man. He's a handsome man. Is there? My mother some... always said I look like a young Denzel, but you know she's my mother. And she's just always moms. right. Yeah. She's always right. So, so this is good because I don't. Jack Nicholson's pretty old, and I'm kind of old. Do I really have to go to Jack Nicholson? Isn't he like 80? Yeah, I don't think you look like well, Jack Nicholson. He, uh, I, okay, but I mean, Jack Nicholson's a hell of a lot better comparison than Matthew McConaughey, which is the last actor that came oh, no, no. in this discussion. No, I, no, 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 yeah, no. I mean, I have a list. So I went through okay. and I listed 16 different body parts of mine, and I have 16 different actors wow. where each body part is compared okay. to a certain actor. So, okay, ankles. I would say, I'm just kidding. Um, so they did that movie. What was the Kevin Hart, Will Ferrell movie where Will Ferrell was? You do look like Will Ferrell. So Will Ferrell often yeah, takes his hard. shirt. Get hard. This makes me want to do the Buckeye Take remake of Get Hard with me in the Will Ferrell role and Steven in the Kevin Hart role. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Wow. And I don't think most of the Buckeye Talk subscribers – Listeners and subscribers have seen me without my shirt on. Some of them have. But Will Ferrell always takes his shirt off for movies, and he has like a scar kind of on his stomach, I think from like an appendectomy or something. And he kind of has like weird curly stomach hair. So I don't have either of those things. But otherwise, that's kind of the Doug experience. If you've seen Will Ferrell without his shirt on, Kind of like streaking, if you ever wanted to know what I would look like if I went streaking. If you've seen old school, you have a pretty good idea of that. So um, no, one, no one has ever wondered This that. would be a heck of a promo for Buckeye Talk. I'm yeah. So, I mean, I don't – again, again, if there's no football in the fall, um, then Stephen and I might have time to remake a movie. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> At least like a 20-minute version of Get Hard. Get Hard 2, uh, the Doug and Steven story. So um, – Jack That's Nicholson, scary. also, his hairline is not that great, so I don't know if I would agree with that one. Okay, let's do um, one more question before we take a break, and then, again, I, I got to get to a thing. We're going to have uh, a future podcast with a guy from Pick 6 Previews, who um, is kind of, a, I think, a, a newer college football season preview. I'm interviewing him. We'll have that on a pod next week. But let's do this first, quickly, the next Power 5 job. We've done this a lot. People always want to know what's going to happen to future Ohio State assistant coaches. We may have done this specifically. I don't remember if we did. I think we have done this. From the 303, which Buckeye assistant is next to get a Power 5 head job? That's different than going to coach the MAC. And I think – I don't know – I don't know that anybody on the staff would be able to make a power five jump without one in between that like, maybe it'd be like, okay, somebody leaves and is a head coach in the Mac. And then like Tim, Tim Beckman once upon a time 
um, before he was the failed Illinois head coach, was an Ohio State assistant. Then he went to Oklahoma State as an assistant. Then he became the Toledo head coach. Then he became the Illinois head coach. Nathan, is there a guy that, that leaps to mind that you think, yeah, this guy could have a power five head job, a current Ohio State assistant, maybe in the next two, three years? Power five. That is the interesting wrinkle is because we've answered this question. I don't know if we've answered the power five question before. I know that we've answered the who on the staff be the next head coach. Um, power five. I, I guess I would say Kevin Wilson because he's been a power five head coach twice before. Maybe that would be the, the quickest one to maybe get that third chance at that. Um, twice before? I, twice before? Oh, I'm sorry. Just once before. Just once before. He was the uh, yeah. offensive coordinator at Oklahoma. Um, yeah, I, I. so I that maybe gets him another shot, but I, I, I think you're right. I think anybody else would have to take that intermediary step. So I think I might actually change my vote on who the next head coach to – the next coach to be a head coach. I think Tony Alford might be able to get that shot next now, um, partially because he – you know, the, the recruiting success that he had both with Trey Sermon and with the 2021 class, I think those are both things that he can use in um, pursuing that next position. So I think and I might vote Tony Alford for that now. Kevin Wilson and Tony Alford, both their names got thrown out for that Colorado State head job that eventually went to Steve Adazio, uh, who's part of the Urban Meyer coaching tree. Um, so, but yet again, Colorado State's not a power five job. Steven, what's your answer? Right. Wasn't Al Washington like in the mix for the Boston College job at one point before Jeff Hoffley took it? Uh, I don't, I guess it depends Loosely. what you think in the, in the mixes. Um, like, I think his name was on a, like a Pete Thamel list, which is, I don't know. I guess I did Boston college talk to him. Boston college might've talked to him. Um, Al's pretty young, but I know what you're saying there. I know what you're saying. I mean, Al Washington is a good young coach, you know? So, yeah. And in a world where there are some good young coaches seem to be getting hired, I think that level of power five where you're a power five school, but you're not necessarily national championship contending, I think would be, that's an intermediate step of a, for a power five school that I, I wouldn't be surprised if he got a job like that in the next two or three years, that level of a power five. Al Washington is 36 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I'm trying to look up how old. Has he been a coordinator previously at any stop? I don't think so, but give me yeah, like I, mean, I, I, just, I don't know what Power Five is hiring someone who's not been a, at least a he coordinator. Hasn't. Yeah, so he um, would at least have to get that title at some point in the next two or three years. I would think he'd have to have either been a coordinator or, again, have done the intermediary step. You know, Daryl Hazel wasn't a coordinator, but he went to Kent State and then went to Purdue. But but part of that answer, that might be your answer to this, though. That Like, I think Al Washington will be a Power 5 head coach in five years because I think in two years he'll go be a MAC yeah. head coach, win, and then two years later be a Power 5 head coach, right? That I understand Reasonable. what you're yeah. saying, Nathan. But but of any coach, that might be the, the best path. I mean, there's there's an actual answer to this, right? It's kind of like a good market down Monday question if we had six years to see what the right answer was. Somebody's going to be. One of these 10 is going to be a Power 5 head coach. So we don't know, but I just think that might be the path. I'm not sure that anybody jumps straight to that. Al Washington, 36, Jeff Halfley, 41. So that's just the difference. You know, Ryan Day became became a Power 5 head coach um, at age 40 at Ohio State. But Ryan Day had NFL experience. Ryan Day had coordinator experience. I think the point about Al Washington, maybe – I don't think Al Washington – I know Al Washington or anybody like him 
same for Tony Alford, wouldn't need to be a coordinator to become a head coach. Daryl Hazel wasn't a coordinator. Mm -hmm. Paul Haynes wasn't a – I guess Paul Haynes was a co-coordinator. Um, but they could jump to the MAC right now. So, but I think your path to become a power five head coach, you either got to go to like the Mac or Colorado state without being a coordinator or be a coordinator at a successful place and then jump, right? One of those two. So I think maybe the answer is Kerry Combs. I don't know. Because again, as we've said, if, if Lovey Smith, if it goes South, if Tom Allen at Indiana, if it goes South, if Jeff Brom, it goes South or he goes to the NFL or something, Say Kerry Combs is like a good defensive coordinator for Ohio State for the next two years, and and or say PJ Fleck leaves, and and, and maybe Kerry Combs at least yet you know he's going to have a year under him. Maybe two, say he has two years under him. If you were Minnesota or Illinois or Indiana or Purdue, and you had a head coaching opening, wouldn't would Ohio State's defensive coordinator who has a great recruiting record, a great development record, and also was in the NFL? And yeah, he's he's up there a little bit, but he's still not yet sixty. Would you look at that guy? Would you can give that guy serious consideration for a head coaching the, job? The the Illinois Indiana Purdue scenarios are especially intriguing to me because yeah. I think they see Cincinnati as being kind of in their greater recruiting um, bubble anyway, right? I mean, it's they're within four hours of there, so ish. So certainly that's the case for Indiana and Purdue. So um, that would make a lot of sense for either of those places. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to vote. So my official vote is Kerry Combs under those circumstances. We'll, we'll refer back to this in three, four, five, six years when somebody gets a job. Who is your official vote, Stephen? I think I'll go Al. And who is your official vote, Nathan? Uh, still Kevin Wilson. Okay. Those are our three. I just think Kevin Wilson um, could get – a non-Power 5 head job, and then we'd have to see how it goes. Again, just to shuck off any of what lingers from Indiana for him. But if he went to, if he had gone to Colorado State and won for two years, um, maybe he could line up for that, just like maybe Kerry Combs would be ready in two years. We'll come back. We're going to do what players would have been better off with a different position coach, which is kind of what we were touching on before, and one or two other questions. We'll be right back on Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back. I promised it. Let's dive right in on it. We're running out of time here from the 440. Are there players that you think would have been better if they had a different position coach? Again, the tech subscriber from the 440. If you want to get in on this and ask us questions, again, we're going to do a call out for another big round of, of questions coming up. Join the tech subscription, 614-350-3315. Send a text there. And we had a great Zoom call with people uh, on Thursday night, we went for an hour and a half. We did all live questions. People could see our faces. We could see their faces. We now have put that on our YouTube channel, but it's hidden. So only our tech subscribers can see it. So if you are a tech subscriber, you have an email. You have a, an email. You have a text now from us with the link for that. If you're not a tech subscriber, sign up. Say you want the link, and I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you personally. But we're probably going to do these maybe every month now. Live Zoom call with video, you guys asking questions. I think sometimes the Zoom call will have a theme. We'll stick to a specific topic, but other times we'll do rapid fire like we did on Thursday. The three of us certainly enjoyed it. We got some good feedback from people who were on. They texted and said, hey, that was really fun. It's another bonus for $3.99 a month. It doesn't cost any more. It's the same thing with the tech subscription. 
It's just an added value for you. So try it. If you've never tried it, there's reason to try it. 614-350-3315. Steven, players that would have been better if they had a different position coach from the 440. I want to say Baron Browning so bad just because he had Bill say Davis. It. He's the answer. He is yeah. the correct answer. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just that simple. Baron Browning is the highest rated linebacker ever come to Ohio State, and we've reached a point where we're questioning if he's a hit or a miss almost, and Bill Davis is the reason of that. If he didn't – say he had Luke Fickle, the, the same linebacker coach that a lot of these other great linebackers who have come through Ohio State had, we're probably talking about it. He's probably not here for his fourth year, first of all. He's probably a three-and-done player just like the other five stars in his class. Connection. I think Luke Fickle connected with his guys. I think Baron Browning – is the type of player who would have succeeded with a coach that really connected with him. Um, Bill Davis was not as good at that. Bill Davis would admit that to you. I think finding a way to put Baron Browning on the field in the right position to succeed, maybe Luke would have gotten him a little, maybe out of middle linebacker a little earlier and just tried to use him in some different ways. Um, I think he is at the top of my list of, of any guy that I feel like just sort of missed it, just sort of missed it. You know, Luke Fickle was in on his recruitment, and then Luke Fickle was gone. Uh, Nathan, what's your answer here? You know, again, you, you you have a better perspective over several years, and me just being here for one year, I don't know if I have a great answer. Well, the one I was going to throw out just for fun was Joe Burrow. That's interesting. That Like, Tom Herman helped recruit – well, I mean, did recruit. Recruited Joe Burrow, was in on him, liked him. I think helped Urban Meyer come around on him a little bit. Got here, and then Jer Burrow ended up trying to work under Tim Beck for two years in that really interesting quarterback room. And then he got a little taste of Ryan Day um, for part of 17 and then like spring football of 18. But his early formative years, we saw Joe Burrow take off with Joe Brady at LSU. And again, he gave credit in his Heisman speech to the people who coached him at Ohio State. But I didn't love the way Tim Beck coached quarterbacks, and I think Joe Burrow is a very interesting answer there. It worked out fine for Joe Burrow in the long run, but Ohio State didn't get to enjoy the spoils there, obviously. Um, so that's the reason I bring that up, that it may, it may have worked out better for Ohio State if something better had happened for him early in his career. I do think Tyreek Johnson is, a, is an uh, interesting yeah, answer in that. here because I think maybe, again, um, I just don't think Tabor Johnson did a great job. Uh, in the year that he was here while Kerry Combs was gone, and then they got Jeff Halfley in here. I think Damon Arnett would tell you that, that Damon Arnett felt more of a connection with Jeff Halfley than he did while Tabor Johnson was here. Again, I think a lot of this, I think these young five-star guys that come in with huge talent and huge expectations, when you connect with them right away, when you are a coach who can believe in them, and this isn't exactly the right phrase, but kind of not break them down, but just like, Teach them, listen, you're really skilled. You were the best player at your high school, but this is how we're going to work. This is a whole new world now. You, you sort of um, you push them, but you also support them. That push and pull, which is what great coaching is all about. You know, pushing a guy, being the good cop and the bad cop at the same time. When you're a position coach, you don't get to be only one. You've got to be both. And I think with the very best, most talented players, they want both and they need both. They need someone to push them, and they also need someone to support them. I think maybe if Tyreek Johnson had had a guy like Kerry Combs the whole way, maybe he, maybe he'd be in a different place right now. Now, to the point, Seven Banks and Cam Brown are ahead of him. Seven Banks and Cam Brown have had to deal with the same thing. But maybe Seven Banks and Cam Brown would be ahead of where they are if they had had Kerry Combs the whole time. Jeff Halfley, I think, 
got that room back in good shape last year. It felt like guys were saying, I like how Jeff Halfley coaches me. So it was maybe only a one-year blip. And it's all the same name. You guys, if you're a regular listener, and it's amazing on that Zoom call and we hear from our tech subscribers, there are people who have been listening since we started this thing in 2015. You know Doug's greatest hits. You know who I'm going to go to on the answer on these questions. I don't think it happens a ton, but I do think it happens some. And we know we know the position groups that were most affected by guys, by coaches that I didn't think maybe were as good as the guy before him. Maybe one more. This might be it. From the 419. Who has the best fast food deal? The Wendy's four for four, the McDonald's two for five, the Burger King $1.49 for a 10-piece uh, chicken thing. There are so many options from the 419. We had a great fast food draft question on the Zoom call the other night. One of our tech subscribers is in a fast food draft with his friends picking entree, side, drink, dessert, and something else. It was like amazing. It kind of made me wish I was friends with that guy. Um, can you invite me into your league? But this is a little different. Steven, I don't know how often you go for the fast food meal deals. Is there one that stands out for you? Yeah, uh, Wendy's 4 for 4 because when I was in college and you have no money, but you still want to get a full meal, Wendy's 4 for 4 always hit the spot. So Let me ask this question. Is the 4 for 4 in existence right now? I'm not so sure. To me, it has been a little hit and miss since the coronavirus, and they possibly have moved on to like a $5 thing. But the four for four is king. The four for four. According to uh, Google, and the question, does Wendy still have four for four? It doesn't say yes or no. It just says with the four for $4, you can create your own meal deal. So I don't so it's because the, the double stack is a great option within the four yeah. four. The double stacks weren't there for some period of time during coronavirus, but we went the other day and they were back. Again, Stephen, you are have more in common with my children sometimes than you do with me. My kids are nuts. They will get home from school and as a snack want the four for four at like four o'clock in the afternoon. And then it's right. like, how are you going to be able to eat dinner at 630 but they, I, the four for four can be viewed as either a snack because it's a burger, some variety in the burger, side nug. Sometimes you can get the spicy in there for your nug, small fries and a drink. It can be a snack or a meal, depending where you are. I live and die by the four for four. I mean, Stephen, I don't know that there's another contender that can come it even can. close. It can't. Wendy's has perfected the deal of meals for when it comes to fast food restaurants. Nathan, is there uh, a little hole in the wall, I don't know, like Irish pub that has some special on shepherd's pie that you want to mention? Well, that's, I mean, that's not fast food. I mean, if you just go in, if you go into the bar and you you run out very quickly, I guess it could be fast food. Is there one that you do enjoy from a fast food side of things? No, I mean, I've been pretty staunchly championing – all things Wendy's. I think Wendy's is the best fast food franchise, and this is just one example of it. And it's one of the reasons why I thought they were going to win the bracket was because I just think they the, the appeal is wide, and the 4 for 4 is one example of that. Yeah, the 4 for 4 is really good. I mean, I, in terms of, like, specialist stuff, I mean, like, you know, you go 12 nugs, fries, and a drink combo at, at Chick-fil-A is, like, legit. I mean, there's not a, really anything special about it, but the packaging, the next-level Wendy's packaging with the 4 for 4, I think, is what puts that over the top. I will say the dollar forty nine for ten nuggets at, at Burger King is actually also a, a really strong deal. Yeah, but I'm not going to Burger King to get chicken nuggets. I'm just gonna be honest. 
Yeah, that is – it, it is if the place can sort of lure you in with the price that you wouldn't normally get the food, but the price is so good and the food's good enough. I think when I think Burger King, depending how much money is in your wallet and depending how hungry you are, can fall into that category sometimes. But the four for four is king. The four for four is king. All right, we're going to cut it off there. We didn't get to all 11 questions on my list. Let's see. How many did we not get to? One, two, three. So we got to eight. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed it. Monday – Steve or Nathan, tell them what we're doing for Market Down Monday. So Market Down Monday this week is about um, this coming season and whether or not it's going to happen, basically, or what form will it happen. So uh, I, I guess the question will be how many how many college football games will be played in 2020 uh, regular season, something along those lines. It's going to be basically us predicting based on the people we're talking to and what we're hearing how this is how we think this is going to shape up as as we're getting closer to when Gene Smith said that teams are going to have programs are going to have to and leagues are going to have to start making decisions on this which is sometime in July early July he feels like the decisions are going to have to be made and we're obviously coming up on that in just a couple of weeks so we'll have the texture opinions on this because I think it's fair now at this point to have people their what their vibe of things are right so I think again right the question I think in the end should be how many regular season games do you predict Ohio State will play in 2020? It's Correct. a 12-game regular season schedule at the moment. How many will actually be played, either because the regular season is adjusted ahead of time or because something happens with the virus in the middle of the year that maybe cancels games or something like that? And we'll just see where people are, right? We'll have an answer by December. Or maybe if – I mean, Pete Thamel is doing a lot of reporting right now about the idea of – of a spring football season possibly growing. So in the end, this will have a correct answer. We, best, we just don't know when we're going to have that answer. So that will be Market Down Monday. We're going to do some rapid fires next week. Indiana is the preview next week. Again, we love you guys joining us. Thanks to everybody who was on the Zoom call. Um, we're going to keep doing those. We hope to see more of you there down the line. We always appreciate everybody who listens to Buckeye Talk. And make sure when you can, you're reading us at cleveland.com slash OSU. So that is our Friday Buckeye Talk. We'll see you Monday. For Nathan and Steven, I'm Doug. And that was Buckeye Talk.